As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 25, Ravenna Park. The long history of Ravenna Park is intimately linked to that of Green Lake Park, which is a physical remnant of the Vashon Ice Glacial Sheet that existed 50,000 years ago. In the past, Green Lake had an outflow creek that made its way southeastward, approximately along the line of today's Ravenna Boulevard, through a one and a half mile long ravine that became increasingly steep and densely wooded before draining into what is now known as Union Bay on Lake Washington. One Native American village was located on the western shore of that bay, and another was located just northeast of the ravine at the mouth of Thornton Creek, so it is reasonable to assume that the cutthroat trout and coho salmon runs in the Ravenna Creek were well known to those natives. They were also likely to have taken note of the sulfuric mineral springs, which were natural characteristics that would later be hailed for their therapeutic benefits. Among the earliest pioneer immigrants to arrive in Seattle were members of the Denny Party, who were among the first to state claims to the land that would become the new municipality of Seattle. They mostly took property near the center shoreline along Elliott Bay. It would take some time, as well as the arrival of other settlers, before anyone staked a claim along the ravine, though. In addition to logging activities, progressing further into the town's surrounding forests, the fields and hills all around were being stripped of their abundant stands of old-growth Douglas fir, as well as gigantic alders, cedars, and willow trees, among numerous other species. The ravine, on the other hand, was spared this fate because of its steep canyon terrain, which rendered the task far too difficult. William N. Bell and his wife Sarah Ann Bell purchased some land north of Union Bay that included the lower end of a creek that came from a ravine. Prior to William Bell's death, the couple sold their land, which reportedly passed through several hands before being purchased by George and Otilde Dorfel in 1887. The same year they filed paperwork to establish Ravenna Springs Park, which was named after the famously beautiful pine tree forested ravines near the town of Ravenna, Italy. Soon after, the medical benefits of the 40 or so springs that bubbled out from the ground were being extolled. That same year, another couple, William Wirtbeck and his wife Louise Beck, made a significant investment in a large tract of 400 acres on the north side of Union Bay that included a portion of the Dorfels' park. The Becks were an intriguing couple. He was a Presbyterian minister from Kentucky who would later claim a background as a minor, and she was a native of Athens, Georgia, who had graduated from the Athens Female College and then went on to study music in the northeastern U.S. She had the necessary qualifications to teach music in Seattle. A brand new town, Ravenna, was what the Becks had in mind for their land, and to that end, they immediately platted out town lots southward from the park's southern edge and joined the world of real estate sales to realize their vision. 
The Becks erected a magnificent residence on 10 acres near the northeast corner of Northeast 57th Street and 26th Avenue Northeast, on which they also established their Seattle Female College, which was dedicated entirely to women. With 40 students for the 1890 school year, the college quickly expanded to include the Seattle Conservatory of Music and Ravenna Seminary, among other institutions of higher learning. In addition, they arranged for the establishment of a post office, which was led by Lafayette S. Beck and the formation of the Ravenna Flowering Company Roper's Grocery, which quite rapidly became an integral part of the community. Finally, the small town would be served by the Seattle, Lakeshore, and Eastern Railroad, which ran through the area on its way to downtown Seattle, along what is now the Burt Gilman Trail. The station would be located at Blakely Street and 25th Avenue Northeast. A few years later, the town site of Ravenna became even more appealing to prospective property purchasers when streetcar service was introduced, with a route that would circumnavigate the entire length of the park along its southern border. David Denny, a Seattle pioneer, was the driving force behind the project. Denny had decided to pursue a career in real estate. The Rainier Power and Railway Company was founded by him after he finished platting the neighborhoods surrounding the park, an area that was still so far away from downtown that Grace Denny built and then maintained a country summer home there at 1615 Northeast 63rd Street. Eventually, the line would be extended to Ravenna Park in 1892, and three years later it was restructured as the 3rd Street and Suburban Railway, which featured a station in Ravenna near today's Northeast 58th Street and Northeast 20th Avenue. After leaving its terminus in downtown, the route traveled through logged and largely uninhabited territory until it turned southward at Ravenna, where it returned to its starting point. According to one source, the vast majority of the territory through the northern half of the systems course was occupied only by squirrels and gophers. However, it was the sight of creatures as well as the natural beauty of the ravine that drew so many people to the area. Sophie Fry Bass, the granddaughter of Denny's brother Arthur, wrote the following about her grandfather. My earliest memory of Ravenna Park is a night stroll around the park in the middle of summer when the moon failed to appear, a cool breeze blew in, and a chill hung in the air. In spite of this, the enormous coal oil lamps gleaming through the trees lighting the route that ran through the park, as well as the bobbing and swinging Chinese lanterns, gave the impression that this was a magical world appropriate for fairies. There were some long days on the road to Ravenna back then, as we boarded the train at a quaint little station at the foot of Columbia Street on the waterfront and rode nine and a half miles to the park, which quickly became a popular picnic location and attraction for out-of-town visitors. The Bex's Seattle Female College was forced to close in the wake of the great economic crash of 1893, but they stayed dedicated to their 60-acre park. Beck fenced in between 15th Avenue Northeast and 20th Avenue Northeast, and throughout the years, he made improvements to the property, such as carving out better routes and planting more trees. His contribution to the park was a path leading to the park's largest sulfur spring, which was sometimes referred to as the Petroleum Spring, and is located at the center of the park below and just east of today's 20th Avenue Northeast Bridge, which he wisely renamed the Wood Nymphs Well. Among the other structures he built was a tea house, a 40 by 90 foot pavilion dubbed Ye Merry Makers Inn, picnic shelters, wading ponds, and a section of land known as Rhododendron Way, where rows of the bushes of the state flower were planted. Women and children were encouraged to visit the park because it was described as safe, clean, and a beautiful location with a deputy sheriff in charge. 
By 1902, it had grown in popularity to the point where 10,000 people were said to have paid the 25-cent admission fee. The following is an excerpt from a booklet that was published by Beck that extolled the virtues of his little slice of paradise. Ravenna Park, with its standing or fallen giant trees, moss and fern-covered canyons, dashing trout streams, preserves in quaint uniqueness every beauty of the wonderful Puget Sound forest and is Seattle's only forest that is unshorn by axe and fire of original beauty and noblest of grandest characteristics. As for Louise, she remained passionate about music throughout her life. As a result of her earlier musical activities in the East, it appears as though she made the acquaintance of a number of major musical talents of the day, because when touring stars, such as the renowned Polish composer Paderowski, the Austrian violinist Fritz Kreisler, and the British pianist Harold Bauer came through town, they invariably stopped at the park and retreated to the hospitality of her Ravenna Park home, according to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Despite the fact that prominent Seattle historian Clarence Begley snarked in 1929 that the park was a merely dark, dank, and dismal hole in the ground, many other visitors were awestruck by the outsized flora and the fish-rich Ravenna Creek that flowed through the park. Like natural wonders such as Niagara Falls, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon, Ravenna Park offered a pilgrimage to the sublime, the contemplative, the spiritual, and the terrifying, according to Kate C. Duncan. It was also known as Big Tree Park at one point around the turn of the 20th century because of the park's enormous trees that adorned it at the time. The Roosevelt tree, which was 274 feet tall and had a circumference of 44 feet, was given the name in 1904 in honor of President Theodore Teddy Roosevelt, who was very much liked and admired by the public for his conservation efforts. It was because of Roosevelt's famous political joke about strolling softly but carrying a big stick that the tree was given the additional moniker, the Big Stick. In the same year, the Becks made their first of several offers to sell their park to the city of Seattle. Despite the Becks' $150,000 asking price, city officials turned down their offer. It was in October of 1906 when the town of Ravenna would be formally established. By 1900, a British immigrant named Charles Cohen had come to purchase 40 acres adjacent to Ravenna Park. This parcel included part of Beck's property, which was located at the westernmost end where a creek flowing from Green Lake made its way down to the ravine. Cohen came up and made a significantly generous offer. He subdivided the majority of the land into residential lots, which he then marketed through his Sylvester Cohen Investment Corporation. However, he determined that 12 of the lots that fell down toward the ravine were unsuitable for that purpose and donated the tract to the city in 1907. Seattle was about to undergo a significant transformation at this point in time. On the 15th of January 1907, the city annexed the little town of Ravenna with a land area of just .62 square miles and five smaller municipalities, effectively tripling the size of the entire city. In that same year, the Polk City Directory identified the Becks as residing in a different residence, one that was located just across the street from the Ravenna station of the streetcar line. Aside from that, Louise Beck began teaching music in a downtown studio that was located in the Arcade Building. After establishing his own downtown office in the Collins Building the next year, William Beck went on to establish the Duwamish Investment Company and Beck Builders, Inc., both of which he ran quite successfully for quite a while. The sheer number of varied promotional postcards, booklets, and posters that were made around this period, however, indicates that he was still investing a significant amount of effort to promoting his park. 
Meanwhile, the city's commercial and political leaders were hard at work preparing for the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition that was held in 1909, which would bring tens of thousands of visitors to the region. Because of the upcoming exhibition, which would be held on the University of Washington campus just a few blocks south of Beck's Park, Beck, believing that throngs of expected fairgoers might easily be enticed into making a side trip to relax in the shady ravine, offered his park to the city once more in 1908. Officials from the city declined once again. Beck said fine and walked away. He claimed that his beautiful park held far more attractions than that which the city could assemble in hot and stuffy buildings at their fair. Preparing for the expo, the Becks enlisted the services of renowned University of Washington historian Edmund S. Meany in curating an inventory of park flora. In addition, in 1908, they stoked community enthusiasm by inviting various social clubs to submit suggestions for the names of various large trees. The Paderowski tree, named after Luis's musician companion, was dedicated by Luis to him. The Robert E. Lee tree, which stood at 400 feet tall, was named by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in honor of Robert E. Lee. Other trees were given names such as Adams, McDowell, Pan, and the Siamese Twins, among others. The Becks also had a little fun by calling a pair of trees that were crammed together after Seattle's squabbling mayor and fiery preacher, Hiram Seagill and Reverend Mark Matthews. <laughs> Adding exotic curiosities to the park, such as an Indian war canoe, a tented structure, wiki-up, and five totem poles, was another way to pique the curiosity of tourists that were visiting the park. A number of changes occurred in the Beck family throughout the years, including the birth of two sons, Dillard R. Beck and Bruce I. C. Beck, who eventually gave them five grandchildren. It was also in 1910 that the couple embarked on a journey to Europe, which included a stop in Ravenna, Italy, where they paid a visit to the tomb of Italian poet Dante and signed the visitor's guest book that had been kept there. Later that year, the city of Seattle condemned the couple's park and a court decided that the property was worth $144,920 at the time of its condemnation. Beck would eventually complain in writing about the false swearing and trickery of Satan that the city had used to obtain his park, a complaint that eventually would be published. In 1911, a national membership directory for the Daughters of the American Revolution identified Luisa's Beck's location as being at Fur Lodge, Ravenna Park, which was an intriguing choice for her residence. The Cowan Ravenna ecology suffered a terrible modification in the same year as the condemnation. Several recommendations made in a master plan commissioned by the city from the famed Massachusetts landscape architect John C. Olmsted were finally put into effect after years of deliberation. A 20-mile-long system of picturesque boulevards was envisioned in that 1903 blueprint, and it was intended to connect numerous parks and playfields located around the city. The unfortunate thing about one of those roadways, Ravenna Boulevard, is that it was to be built after the surrounding Green Lake was lowered, essentially eliminating the requirement for an outflow creek. It was envisioned that a new boulevard would be constructed along the creek's former channel through a winding ravine. The creek was rerouted, driving it underground into Thompson's North Trunk sewer line, which drained into Union Bay, thereby drying up its original course, as well as the once-abundant fish runs between the two parks. Many people have expressed deep regret over the fate of Green Lake, despite the fact that the resulting Ravenna Boulevard has its own positive aspects. 
The poor lake had been diked and dredged, and its once free-flowing outlet stream, Ravenna Creek, had evolved into a wetland dependent on springs and minor tributaries. Despite the fact that the picturesque small brook would never be the same again, today's version is merely a shadow of its former self. The park would now be a public resource available to everyone. The city proceeded on with plans to make significant changes to the neighborhood. A steel Ravenna Park Bridge, which crosses 20th Avenue Northeast directly across from the Becks House, was built in 1913. As the vehicle era dawned, 20th Avenue Northeast became a notorious racing strip for UW frat brothers, as well as Roosevelt High School students, with the narrow bridge segment adding to the excitement. Following the death of President Theodore Roosevelt in January of 1919, the city attempted to rename the park Roosevelt Park, but a public petition compelled officials to revert to the park's previous name in 1931. In the meanwhile, the Cowan Park Bridge, which spans the park at 15th Avenue Northeast, was constructed in 1915. A high and long double-decker wooden bridge with streetcars above and pedestrians below that spanned the ravine and delighted pedestrians was built in 1924 when the streetcar line was extended farther north. A new reinforced concrete bridge, known as the Cowan Park Bridge, was constructed in 1936. Decades later, and following years of engineering tests, it was discovered that the porous concrete of the Ravenna Bridge was crumbling, and by 2011, it had been designated as a pedestrian bridge only. Instead of running as park, Beck continued to sell real estate, and by 1916 he had opened an office in downtown. In 1921, he returned to preaching, accepting the job of pastor of the Interbay Presbyterian Church at 3236 16th Avenue West. After moving closer to downtown on 3rd Avenue in 1923, the Reverend and his wife Louise were listed in the Polk Directory as returning to their previous residence near Ravenna in 1928. Louise Beck passed away in the same year and was buried at the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. A few years later, her widower was recorded as a resident of Olympic Place, Room 202, according to the census. At the very least, William Beck puttered around until 1946. It was only two years after the decimation of Ravenna Creek in 1913 that the city's mismanagement of Ravenna took yet another turn for the worst. The Roosevelt tree, which had been a beloved landmark, had been removed by then, according to some members of the Seattle Federation of Women's Clubs, who just so happened to notice that instead of the beautiful tree stood a new three-foot-high stump in its place. They obviously became quite concerned, and they alerted Seattle Park Superintendent J.W. Thompson, who responded glibly that it had been rotten and had been removed because it posed a so-called threat to public safety. Following some further investigation, it was discovered that Thompson himself had profited from the sale of the big stick, which produced 63 cords of firewood. Following their ordeal, the women reached out to Hugo Wickenwerder, dean of the University of Washington's College of Forestry, who investigated the ravine and determined that some enormous trees had been felled, but that other giants were in fine health. The Parks Department responded by promising that no additional logging would take place. In spite of that, the sawing persisted, as did the outcry of worried citizens. In the end, Thompson was fired for abuse of equipment, abuse of employees, abuse of finances, intoxication, and the unauthorized sale of department property, according to the department. However, with his firing, the chopping did not cease. 
After signing a contract to have more trees felled in 1926, the city claimed that it was doing so out of an abundance of concern for public safety. William Beck advocated strenuously that Paderowski, Robert E. Lee, and McDowell trees in particular should be protected to the fullest extent possible. L. Glenn Hall, an engineer with the Seattle Parks Department, attempted to assuage anxieties by stating that only dead or dying trees would be cut down. In addition, he volunteered to leave 20-foot-tall stumps in order to avoid thinning out the park grounds too much. Unfortunately, such assurances proved to be false, and within a few years, all of the old-growth giants had vanished. Strangely, as time passed and memories faded, the condition of those trees began to become murky and difficult to comprehend. When the subject of the disappearance of the trees was brought up, people provided a variety of explanations. Sophie Fry Bass, writing in 1947, reflected on the past and stated that because of the city's growth, the park was surrounded by homes with chimneys that emitted smoke into the air, which caused the large which caused the large trees to degenerate. Fir trees are resentful of civilization. They needed to be taken down. Nonetheless, even in the absence of its most spectacular trees, the park provided a welcome green oasis in northeast Seattle. It is true that Ravenna Park has played host to a number of noteworthy community events and has been frequently cited in both popular culture and literature. Among many who have written about the park is novelist Betty McDonald, who authored the book Anybody Can Do Anything about her years in the neighborhood. As the Vietnam War dragged on, Ravenna and Cowan Parks were transformed into settings for the town's first hippie-era human beaten, as well as a lovin', and as the war progressed, an independence from the Draft Day concert picnic was held in both 1967 and in 68. Besides being the location for Nick DiMartino's 1998 murder mystery, Seattle Ghost Story, and the popular Black Hole comic book series by Charles Burns, Ravenna Park has also appeared in other works of fiction. If you can track down those Black Hole comic book series, I, I highly enjoy them and I have a full run. I highly recommend them. In addition to podcasting and being a general history nerd, I'm very into comic books and these are right up my alley. I have the whole series and I enjoy reading them every now and then. Ravenna Creek was rerouted in accordance with Olmsted's master plan of 1903 and it was never quite the same after that point. Formerly a damp and luxuriant, deep, isolated woodland ravine, it has dried up and become significantly less appealing as a result. Afterwards, around the mid-1930s, the public was successful in pressuring the city into filling in and flattening the lower southeastern end of Ravenna in order to construct playfields. On the other hand, in the early 1960s, as work progressed on the construction of Interstate 5 a few blocks to the west, approximately 100,000 cubic yards of construction waste was trucked over and dumped into Cowan Park, effectively turning the once rural ravine back into a level streetscape with space for ball fields and playground equipment, which is what still exists there to this day. The city's trail maintenance efforts a few decades ago resulted in a terrible accident when a bulldozer operator unintentionally disturbed the source of the once free-flowing spring while working on an adjacent footbridge. Since then, it has amounted to nothing more than a depressingly tiny trickle. Meanwhile, the Ravenna neighborhood has had to fight the city on a number of occasions over what appears to be an unending number of proposals to drain what little of Ravenna Creek remained into sewers. 
For example, in 1948, a plan by the city engineer was successfully stopped, and another in 1986 when plans to use the ravine as a staging area for a major stormwater drain pipe installation project were also thwarted. The latter, on the other hand, served the purpose of galvanizing park supporters to rally for new efforts to restore and protect the park, which were ultimately successful. Following that, a community organization known as the Ravenna Creek Alliance lobbied for the daylighting of some of the creek's long-buried sections. Because of the work of these residents, the southeastern end of Ravenna Park has been magnificently restored, with new trails and riparian habitat being restored along a considerable portion of the creek that had been so badly damaged. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include HistoryLink.org, Winter Walks and Hikes by Harvey Manning, Anybody Can Do Anything by Betty McDonald, When Seattle Was a Village by Sophie Fry Bass, Seattle Weekly, The Daughters of the American Revolution, The Seattle Post-Intelligencer, The University of Washington Libraries, SeattleOlmsted.org, and Friends of Ravenna Cowan. Thank you for listening to Episode 25, Ravenna Park. Episode 26 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Again, the podcast now has merchandise available for purchase. The link to that Teespring store is in the episode description. It's a great way to support the show and to also let people know about it and to help it grow. Next up for episode 26 will be a brief look at some of the legends and mysteries that surround Wallula. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Jimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.